It is a real privilege and pleasure for my wife, Bernice, and I to be uh, worshiping with you again here at Faith. I say again because I think it was about three years ago that I found myself in your midst, and I'm glad that in God's providence that can happen yet again. I know that's not so important for you to know who I am, but people are curious by nature, and if you're willing to listen to what I have to say about God's Word this morning, and maybe if you're inclined, and I hope you are, to join us for our discussion about the Bible after the service, and then a free lunch. Did you, you've been told there hasn't been a, such a thing as a free lunch, but apparently there is today. Uh, and then a, a session afterwards. Uh, you, you may want to know a little bit about who is uh, here. So, uh, my name is Jeff Wyma, like Wyma do I have to do this and Wyma do I have to do that. And uh, I am a professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary for 31 years, which means I'm getting old, I guess. But my wife and I are originally from Canada. We're both children of immigrants from the Netherlands. And uh, we uh, went to Calvin as uh, seminary students. And then after five years of serving in a variety of churches and teaching half-time at Redeemer University and working on my PhD, we moved back to the New Jerusalem, yes, Grand Rapids, in 1992. And for 31 years, that's, that's where we've been. I teach the New Testament, primarily the letters of Paul, but I get to do other things too. I lead biblical study tours to Greece and to Turkey and to Italy and to Israel and Jordan. And a number of people have done them and lived to tell about it. And uh, that's always an exciting thing to connect the ancient world to the Bible. That's another way in which the Bible uh, can come to life. I do a fair amount of public speaking, usually on controversial subjects. So sometimes there's a bit of passion involved, but uh, uh, it's important for the church to address uh, contemporary issues from a biblical point of view, and I'm, I'm happy for the opportunity to do that. Um, I, I lead seminars for pastors. I'm very promiscuous with my PowerPoint notes, as you'll see uh, in the presentation after church uh, today. And the idea is that pastors would take that information, run back to their church, and then turn it into a sermon series contextualized for their home congregation. And so that's another ministry. And um, I myself get to uh, preach, and, and that's really my role this morning. And uh, I'm sticking with safe material. You know, I'm a little nervous coming to Faith Christian Reformed Church in Elmhurst. You know, I have to make sure that it goes well. So that means we're looking at a letter of Paul. We're looking specifically at the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And I always encourage people, so I have to do it again, not only to have your Bibles open now as the text is read, but if you keep it open also as it's explained. And that way, we not only can we hear, but we can see what God is saying to us in his word. And what's more, it allows you to test whether what you hear from up in the front of the sanctuary agrees with and is supported by what is found on the pages of Scripture. So, with all of that, I hope you're on page 1165 if you have a pew Bible or in your own Bible on Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We're looking at a letter this morning, but truth be told, our text is not so much a letter as found within a letter and actually is a prayer. Because in the verses we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul is coming to the feet of God in prayer. And in his prayer, Paul is sharing with the Colossians his biggest hopes, his desires, his dreams for what God will do in and through his readers in Colossae. And this morning, I would like to take Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae and turn it into my prayer for you here at Faith Christian Reformed Church. And my prayer is not just for you, frankly, but you as a representative of the Christian Reformed denomination of which we are a part. Now, the first thing in our examination of the prayer, Paul's prayer for the Colossians and my prayer for you, is the circumstances in the prayer. What was going on in the apostle's life anyway when he penned or dictated to his secretary the words that we are hearing this morning? Well, life for the Apostle Paul is not very good, frankly, because he is in the capital city of Rome under house arrest, and he's waiting for his case to come before the emperor himself. His name is Nero. Perhaps you've heard about him. And so Paul's life is on the line depending on the outcome of this hearing with Nero himself. Now, the reason that Paul is under house arrest in the city of Rome is actually because of something that happened two plus years earlier, far away in the eastern city of Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul had been on his third missionary journeys. I'm sure you've heard about these trips he took. And anyway, on the end of the third missionary journey, he was hitting upon, and I could say it that way, I think, with justification, he was hitting upon his Gentile congregations to give of an offering, a collection that he was gathering to bring to the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Paul was hoping, there was a lot more than money going on, by the way. Paul was hoping that this ongoing perennial tension, this seeming division between Jewish believers and Gentile believers would somehow be solved, that he could bridge the gap by having his Gentile converts give a financial gift to the Jewish believers thereby demonstrating the power, the transforming power and reconciling work of the gospel. 
And so Paul did hit upon, he collected money from all of these churches of his on his third missionary journey. And these churches gave not only money, but people. He had a kind of a growing entourage with him. And he finally made his way to the city of Jerusalem. He handed over that money. And while he was there, he, well, he says, I have become all things to all people. I mean, to those under the law, I became like those under the law. And so in in keeping with that mode and also with this vow that he had taken, he went to the temple, you know, the Jerusalem temple. And one of his traveling companions, a Gentile by the name of Trophimus from Ephesus was with him. And the Jews there, not the Jewish Christians, the Jews there saw this Gentile with Paul and they assumed wrongly, they assumed that Paul had taken this pagan, this Gentile, into the inner cart of the Jews. And that was a big no-no. In fact, the Jews had special permission that if anyone violated this law, this religious law, they would be guilty of death. And there was actually a crowd that descended on Paul and surely would have done him harm, but then Paul was rescued by the Romans. You see, because the Romans know if you want to keep an eye on the Jews, you better keep an eye on their temple. And they have a garrison situated right there on the corner of the temple, and they see a commotion below. They run down, and they kind of rescue Paul, in a sense, from his fellow Jews. And it was then that Paul reached into his pocket, and he pulled out not his visa card, but he pulled out his Roman citizenship a pretty big deal. Not many people could do that. But that entitled Paul to some very important privileges and rights. And and because of that Roman citizenship and because there was a threat against his life, maybe you know about that side story, Paul had to be snuck away in the middle of the night to the nearby port city of Caesarea Maritima. I'm stopping for a second because Paul was there for a while. He was there for two years. Because you see, the governor, his name was Felix, had heard Paul had come into town with a boatload of cash, and he was hoping that Paul's friends would use that cash to bribe him to get out of jail, and it didn't happen. Well, Felix left the scene. Another governor came on the scene, and his name was Festus. Who is this Paul guy? And and so there was, again, another kind of trial. And one more time, Paul reached into his pocket and pulled out again his Roman citizenship. And even though, really, those examining him, the governor and the grandson of Herod the Great and his wife Bernice, they, uh, they, they really thought there was nothing wrong that he had done, but he ended up... You know the story. It was a pretty harrowing boat journey. He finally ended up in Rome, only to wait at least another two years for that case to come to court. Nero, life or death sentence. So those things were not really good about Paul, but nevertheless, there was a silver lining, if you will, because Paul wasn't in jail. He was under house arrest. Acts is quite clear about that. And so even though he couldn't go anywhere and preach the gospel, he was still carrying on his ministry. He he was writing letters, sending them away. He was receiving guests, and he wasn't alone. He had a bunch of helpers with him, like Timothy, for example. Well, it so happened that during this two-plus-year period, while he was under house arrest in Rome, Paul got a visitor. His name was Epaphras, Pastor Epaphras, to be more precise, because he was a minister. He was a minister of the church of Colossae. 
along with the church of Laodicea and Hierapolis, three cities so closely connected that he was ministering in all three of them. And Pastor Epaphras had traveled 1,200 miles from the Lycus Valley in modern-day western Turkey and Asia Minor in the ancient world to come all the way to Paul to say, Paul, I've got good news and bad news. We don't have time this morning to talk about the bad news. But he says, the good news is this. Lots of people back home are believing in the gospel and demonstrating faith. And this good news from Epaphras caused Paul not only to be encouraged, courage, yes, but it also caused him to do something. It caused him to do what we're reading about in our text right here in verse 9, if you have your Bibles open and are following along. Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, right, from Pastor Epaphras, What did we do? We have not stopped praying for you, and, well, I'll just just stop there. So this good news from Pastor Epaphras not only encouraged Paul, but it also caused him to do something to pray for them. Please don't say, of course he prayed for them. He's an apostle. He prays for everybody. Instead, I want you to remind, be reminded that he's under house arrest, that his life is on the line. He could have justly said, pray for me. I'm an important person. God's using me to spread his kingdom. Oh, I haven't mentioned to you the important fact that Paul doesn't know the Colossians. It's one of only two letters he wrote to congregations that he didn't start, that he didn't present with the gospel. And so even though he doesn't even know them by face, as he says in this letter, I'm praying for you. And this prayer for the Colossians was not a quickie prayer that just kind of made Paul feel good about himself. Maybe you don't do that. You know, sometimes I do, right? How do I know that? Because the text says explicitly, we have not stopped praying for you. In fact, the original Greek text shows that Paul, in a regular, ongoing, consistent way, along with his co-missionaries and co-workers, were on their knees praying for the welfare of the Christians in Colossae. And in a similar way, I guess I'm on my knees praying for, well, Christians who aren't that well known to me, but yet Christians that I'm concerned about, Christians who are part of my family, the family of God, even more narrowly, the family called the Christian Reformed Church of North America. And I'm praying for you, not a quickie prayer that makes me feel good, but, a, but in an ongoing, consistent way, I'm praying that God's going to be at work in your midst and in every congregation in our denomination like you, that, that you and I and all of us together will be faithful to the gospel and to the calling that God has given us. Well, that's the first of the three C's that we're talking about this morning, the circumstances of the prayer. We move on, secondly, to the challenge of the prayer. Because Paul spells out to the Colossians why he's persistently praying for them. What's the goal or purpose or what's the challenge that Paul has in mind for them? And you can read about it in verse 10. He says, and we pray this in order that you may what? 
live a life, big phrase, worthy of the Lord. The Lord isn't God the Father. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm praying that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, worthy of Jesus. And the next phrase is important too. And that you may please, actually it would be nice if you would say it if you were following, please Maybe no one's following along. Please him. In other words, not please others, not please yourself, but please him, that is Jesus, in every way. So what's the challenge of the prayer? That they will live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus, a life that pleases Jesus in every way. I told you that uh, I grew up in Canada, and my wife and I are American citizens now, but as I compare Canada, United States, and compare the prime minister position of Canada and the president position of the States, you know, it's, it's clear to me that the president has more power, because Can- Canada is a smaller nation, right? America is a, is a powerful nation. Some of us would like to think we're the last great superpower on earth. And it's true, therefore, that the president, our president, Biden, has a lot of power. I mean, the economy, armies, not just our own, but those around the world. I mean, all kinds of lives are impacted because of the power of the presidency. But along with the power, of course, comes the perks. No president says, I I want the position for the perks, but I'm sure they enjoy it. You know, living in the White House is a pretty nice perk. Flying on Air Force One seems like a really, really nice perk. I'm sure that President Biden never has to stand like this in an airport and turn around. And of course, you know, he's got a helicopter that takes him to Camp David. It seems like a pretty nifty retreat to run to if life is just a little bit busy or hectic. The salary is not the greatest, I admit, uh, if you're a president, but, you know, after you leave office, you write a book or two, go on a speaking tour, and you can, you can be more than pretty comfortable. So there are a lot of perks that come with the office of being president. But as powerful as our president is, the truth is he can't do anything he wants. I mean, there are restraints, there are restrictions. He has to live his life, and I'm choosing my words very carefully now. He has to live his life in a way that is what? That is worthy of the office of president. You and I have a lot of perks that I don't think we always appreciate. It doesn't seem like we do. The perks that come from being followers of Jesus. Our text talks about all the the blessings. I mean, I I hope you are, are really excited about some of the things that come from belonging to Jesus. I mean, our text will talk about what? Us sharing in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I like this idea. We get to inherit something. We didn't deserve it. We just get it given to us. And then we read about, um, we have redemption. It's a big word, but I think I know what it means. And the forgiveness of sins. Yay. But I especially like the verb in verse 13. If you were following along, you'd see there that we read, he has Oh, now, okay, rescued us. Yeah, I I love that verb. 
I mean, you see, Jesus didn't just help us a little bit. Jesus didn't just kind of bail us out, you know, when we were going through a rough time. Jesus doesn't just make our life a little more rich or meaningful. He does nothing less but rescues us. That's the good news of the gospel. Those are just a few of the amazing perks that you have. You didn't deserve it. I didn't either. Don't feel bad. But I mean, inheriting the, a share in the kingdom of the saints of light and, and having the forgiveness of sins and redemption and, and most importantly of all being rescued, you know, what better perks could there be than those gifts? But the truth is, we just can't, as Jesus followers, live our life any old way that we want to either. We have to live our life in a way that is worthy of the office of believer, worthy of the title Christian. And that's the challenge that Paul is laying before the Colossians, and that's the challenge that I see God laying before me and you and the Christian Reformed Church today. What is the challenge? Do we individually and do we collectively live a life that is worthy of the Lord? Yes. And do we live a life that pleases who? Why don't you say it this time? Pleases him. You see, so much of us are focused on pleasing ourselves. It's me, myself, and I, and that's a danger. But another danger, and Pastor Matthew alluded to it, is we have pressure from the outside. We're so worried on a lot of hot-button issues, what other people think about us. We're so worried about pleasing others. And our text is a powerful reminder that our sole goal in life is to live a life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus, a life that pleases him. And him in every way. That's an important phrase, too. In other words, you don't please Jesus just by coming to church on Sunday morning. Although that's a good way to please Jesus. In every way means at all times and in all places. In fact, Reformed Christians have actually emphasized this fact that our world belongs to God. And we take very seriously the sovereignty, the power of God over all of life, and the victory of Jesus, right? Jesus said, all authority, not some or most, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so in Jesus' name, we seek to live a life that is worthy of Jesus in every way, right? So in church in home, in school, in work, in vacation, at all times and in all ways, our challenge is painfully clear to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, a life that pleases not us or others, but him. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't just present this rather intimidating challenge to the Colossians and then says, uh, good luck with that, all right? I hope you can figure out what that means. He goes on, actually, in our passage to spell out one, two, three, four specific ways in which they can live a life that is worthy of the Lord, a life that pleases him in every way. So aren't you curious about what those four ways are? I am. So let's look at the text and find out. So
So in the middle of verse 10 where we left off, we get a short phrase that goes like this. Bearing fruit in every good work. Some of us might be a little bit puzzled by that. Good work, you're saying to yourself. I thought we weren't saved by good works. We're saved by grace. Well, of course, that's true. There is no good work, singular, or works, plural, that we could ever do that would be enough to pay for our sin and the penalty for that sin. It's a a gift of grace. Just because that's true doesn't mean that good works are unimportant. Scriptures actually are quite clear that good works, the things that we do, are an important part of what? Not gaining our salvation, but responding to our salvation. It's a powerful way of saying thank you. We thank God with our prayers, our songs, our gifts. But a great way to say thank you to God is what? With our lives, with our holy and obedient lives. And so our works suddenly actually are a big part of our daily walk. Jesus said, you know, in his earthly ministry, by their fruit you will know them. In other words, you can tell a lot about a person by the fruit, right? The good works, or maybe the not so good works that they do. And so that raises an interesting question about what I would learn about you. You know, if I would go to your family members, go to your neighbors, go to your coworkers and say, you know, uh, so-and-so whom you know is a Jesus follower, and what do you know about them? I mean, just, you know, from the kind of things they do and the way they act and the way they speak, what, what, do you, what, do you, what can you tell me? The challenge of the prayer for me and for you this morning is to make sure that in our works, in our concrete acts, all of them, no matter what they may be. I mean, yes, obviously it involves concrete acts of kindness toward those who are hurting and in need. It means using the right kind of language, referring to members of the opposite sex in wholesome and uh, honoring ways. I mean, it, it means like giving and giving cheerfully. It means, uh, well, it means opening God's word and listening to him speak. It means living out the gospel in every corner of our life. I mean, Whatever action you can think of, we can say, wait a minute, that's an opportunity for you and for me to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, a life that pleases him in every way. Remember, Paul's praying for the Colossians, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you and our other members of our family will live such clearly and obviously distinctly Christian lives that they will bring glory to God and honor to Jesus Christ. Well, that's only the first one. We go to the second one, and the second one is especially important for us. Why? Because, well, we're starting this little series, this time of reflection as a congregation about Scripture and the importance of the Bible. We read here, growing in the knowledge of God. How does growing in the knowledge of God relate to the Bible? Well, we only know God through two ways. We know him in a general way from his creation, from the world around us, but we know him much more clearly and much more in detail, and we have much more information about his will for our lives and what he's done for us, his people, from his word. 
And so if you're going to do what this phrase says, grow in the knowledge of God, you can't do that without spending time thinking about and hearing the voice of God in this book we call the Bible. Now, I have a pretty strong sense that nobody at Faith Christian Reformed Church is going to give me a hard time about emphasizing the Bible. Yay, Bible. Go Bible. Yeah, I love the Bible. But you know, it's very easy and it's becoming all too common for, for many of us to say nice things about the Bible, but it's just lip service. We don't live by the Bible. We don't listen to the Bible. There are studies, I mean, you know, uh, studies of Christians, like how often do you read the Bible and how often do you study the Bible? And anyway, over time, it's all down, down, down. I told you that I've been teaching at Calvin Seminary for 31 years, and so what that means is 32 years ago, I stood in front of Synod as a pretty young guy, and I don't know, maybe this is hard to explain, but there was a group in our denomination at the time called Concerned Members. Not a very catchy title, right? Concerned members. Anyway, there were concerned members, and they had meetings because they were concerned, and they took certain actions. And anyway, because this was happening in the denomination, someone on the floor of Synod asked a simple but actually kind of a loaded question. He said, are you a concerned member? And I said, no and yes. I said, no, I'm not a member of this kind of semi-official organization that meets and gathers, and I gave some reasons why I wasn't. But I did say yes. I said, I am concerned in a different way. I'm concerned about, and I use this exact phrase, about the declining knowledge of the Bible in the Christian Reformed Church. That's what I said 32 years ago. And I don't want to insult anyone, but I feel like I'm getting smarter and smarter when it comes to the Bible every year. Not because I'm learning more, but everyone around me seems to know less and less. And when we have debates in our churches, and we do, and we've had them already, and we're having them right now over controversial matters, very sensitive matters. This isn't true for everybody, but in way too many cases, people have an opinion, but it's not an informed opinion. It's not a biblically informed opinion. I remember talking about human sexuality in my congregation. I just casually said something like, I'm not really excited to get into this debate, but, you know, there are three clear texts that deal with same-sex attraction or same-sex sex in the New Testament. They're all from Paul, and because I'm a Pauline guy, and people are like, what are those three texts? And I'm like, I was, I was a little disappointed. I gave them the three texts, but how many of us here could know what those three texts are? How can you have an informed opinion on the issue of homosexuality if you don't even know what the three texts are, let alone what they say and how they should be interpreted? And the biblical ignorance, I'm afraid, is not just we might call the progressive side of things, even on the right. I mean, there are people on the right who might have the correct answer in my mind, but I'm not comforted by the fact if you can't defend it biblically. Because, you know, there are complex issues that we're willing with now, and there are new ones in the future, and I just sense that our denomination is increasingly vulnerable, right? Because people are listening to what? The voice of experience and the voice of personal opinion, and our culture, of course, has strong opinions, but... 
How can we discern? There's a good verb we need to think about, right? How can we discern what is true and what is wise to do if we, if the Bible's not a big part of that whole discussion? And so may it be that our discussions after church today and you in a congregation in the weeks to come, may it spur us on to listening more carefully to what God is saying in his word so that we can better appreciate who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and how he has called us to live. Because, well, remember, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you and, yes, everyone else in our denomination will live a life that is worthy of the Lord, a life that pleases him in every way. And and that's not going to happen unless all of us are growing in the knowledge of God, unless we're listening to God speak to us in his word, the Bible. Well, I better move quickly. There's two more. The third one involves a lot of power language. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. But in the midst of all of those power words, there's a little three-letter word that is more important, being strengthened with all power according to whose? His glorious might. So what Paul is saying to the Colossians, and what you and I ought to hear in our text is this, yes, the challenges we face are great. It's not easy to live a life that's worthy of the Lord in an increasingly secular age and culture that is more and more hostile to the convictions of the Christian faith. That's not easy at all, but the good news is there's more than enough power available to live that kind of life. But wait a minute, that power is not to be found in ourselves, The power isn't because we're smart enough, because we're hardworking enough, because we're gifted enough. No, the power comes from Jesus Christ himself and our relationship with him. And so it's a good reminder for me to, well, there's a sense of humbleness, right? That that I can't face these issues alone, but I need the power of Jesus Christ made available through his word and spirit. And in the fourth way, verse 12, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Thankfulness, gratitude is a huge part of living a life that is worthy of the Lord. Do the the good folks at faith, I'm sure people here have heard of something called the Heidelberg Catechism. You have heard about that, yes. And, and some of us heard about that wonderful first question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and a death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and then it spells out all the perks that come from that. That's what's so great about that answer. But in all the attention we give to question and answer one, don't forget about question and answer two. Because two asks a very logical question. It says, well, I just described this wonderful comfort. It says, how do I get that? And then question and answer says, well, there are three things. You you get that comfort by doing three things. First, I need to know how great my sin and misery are. Oh, that doesn't sound very fun. Okay, yes. Second, how I am set free from all that sin and misery. Yay, that sounds better. (laughs) But that's not where it ends. The third thing is how I am to, you can look it up if you want, how I am to thank God. God for such deliverance. Do you see thankfulness 
Gratitude is a huge part of the Christian life. And so I'm praying that you here at Faith are a community of, well, thanksgiving and praise. That this is a place where Christians are coming together out of a, a natural, genuine, earnest desire to bring to God the thankfulness, the gratitude that stems from, well, all of these amazing spiritual perks that are ours. We didn't deserve them, but we have them only because we belong to Jesus. So I'm praying for you, and I hope you're praying for me. And may all of our prayers be focused on asking God to work in and through us by his word and spirit in such a way that what happens that we live lives that are worthy of the Lord, lives that please not ourselves or the world or others, but lives that please him in every way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel, the good news that is recorded in your word, the Bible. And so we thank you for the word this morning, the, the way that Paul's words to the Colossians reflect not only your will for them then and there, but for us here and now. And so may the same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words, now work in us so that these words may be heard and heeded. Maybe not just hear them and say, yeah, that sounds great. But may we heed them. May we obey them. May those words so work in us that we will indeed bear fruit in every good work, that we may indeed grow in our knowledge of you, that we may be strengthened with all power, not according to our own strength and might, but according to that of Christ. And may all of this be done in a way that reflects our joyful thankfulness to you. Oh God, work these truths in us we pray for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.